Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you this, for this day, a day in which we have come through safely a hurricane in our midst. We pray for those that are caught up in difficult weather that you would grant wisdom and safety. We pray for brethren that couldn't be here because of flooding or loss of power, that you would protect them, keep them from harm's way. We pray that in these times, that you, by your effectious power, would with your spirit draw men's hearts unto yourself as they see things that are shaken so that what remains might stand. Help them cling to what remains, the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us do so today as we listen to your word and seek to learn its instruction. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we will be zooming a bit ahead on the Revised Common Lectionary. Actually, next week is the reading for Romans 13, and the week after that is the reading for Romans 14. But because of uh, not being in the pulpit for the two weeks there, the 11th and the 18th, I'll be out. So I'm going to try to finish the lectionary readings a week ahead of time. So we'll go Romans 13 predominantly today and Romans 14 next week, and then we'll have some, some guest speaking in, my, in, uh, in the weeks to come. So today, if you would look at Romans 13, the outline is in your bulletin. Let's remember, in these days, it's very easy for those of us who maybe favor a, a conservative point of view politically or maybe favor a fiscal responsibility point of view, uh, for those who can do math and don't want to spend more than you make, things like that, for those people like that, we may have very difficult days of having honor and giving honor to those on the other side of the political spectrum who seem to have a radically different understanding on how to solve our nation's problems. And so we know, we've seen on the news how much at loggerheads the different political parties are. It's been difficult in the last month or so for people who have a lot of things in common to come together and work effectively and have agreement because there's such a different political outlook. And you've seen that. Our responsibility as believers, as believers not first and foremost that are politicians, of course, it's a godly calling to serve the country in that civic duty. And we know of course, of brethren like Gordon Denlinger, by the way, whose daughter is uh, in uh, Hershey Medical Center dealing with E. coli, so we will be praying for her a bit later, Mariah. It's a godly calling to seek to bring the wisdom of God's Word into the civic sphere where, indeed, our laws can reflect God's law. That's a good calling. And I don't know that any of us currently in this room have that calling, but for us, we must look at the other side of it, and that is to be subject to the authority and the powers that God has given. So here now, Romans 13, Paul's exhortation to this effect. Let every person be subject to the powers, for there is no authority except by God's appointment. And those who exist have been instituted by God. So the person who resists such authority 
resist the ordinance of God. And those who resist will receive condemnation. For rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but only for bad. Do you want not to fear authority? Then do good and you will receive its commendation. For it is God's minister for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for it does not bear the sword in vain. It is God's minister to avenge wrath on the wrongdoer. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's remember where we are in this book of Romans. As we have seen, the fulfillment of all of the promises to the fathers, as we heard read in the Old Testament reading today, the promise that God would redeem Israel, that God would indeed fulfill His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that Christ was the means of that fulfillment. We know that very well. And through the book of Romans, Paul is explaining to a context in which there are Jews, there are God-fears who would become Jews, there are proselytes who have become, as it were, Jews, And there are Gentiles who have come in simply believing the gospel. He's explaining to a context where there is a mixed group that indeed God has fulfilled His promises through Christ. We've seen how wonderful that is. And so in chapter 8, we've seen the great word that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. The, The greatness of God's renewal of His people. He is undoing the fall by renewing and making a new humanity in the world, as we would say in Ephesians chapter 2. And so it is. And in the meantime, the world itself is being renewed and we're waiting for a day of consummation when the sons of God shall be fully revealed. When we see Him as He is, we shall be like Him. And then we had that section of Romans 9-11 through which explains more in detail how it is that God has fulfilled His promises unto Israel, even though a large part of Israel in the day of Paul rejected Jesus. And we found out at the end of chapter 11 that indeed God will save all of His people, which He calls Israel there, Jew and Gentile, by the process of His divine grace, even provoking Jews through the ages to turn to Christ. And that certainly has been the case. Thus, all Israel shall be saved. And now in chapter 12, we have seen the first command, that is, we, seeing all of the ways that God has been merciful to us, seeing all of the great rich mercies poured out so that we come not by race, we're saved not by race, but by grace. We come to Him, we have our sins completely dealt with, and God promises renewal and transformation, promises as we've already recited in the Apostles' Creed, resurrection, life from the dead, eternal life. God has given us all of these things, therefore we should be rejoicing. And so what does it mean then for us to live in the light of those divine truths, to live in the light of the gospel which changes us? It means that we are living sacrifices. It means that we, like the animals on the altar of old, come and ascend to God and are transformed into what is pleasing to God. And think about that Romans 12 passage. You remember last week I emphasized a lot about being a living sacrifice and how that works itself out into being part of the body. 
very much connected to the idea of being part of a new human race, a new humanity. But I didn't emphasize the second part of Romans 12.1, which is that, or in Romans 12.2, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And just think about that for a moment now. You know this. This is a common passage. And we covered the substance of it, I suppose, last week. But let me emphasize this again before we get to Romans 13. We must, as living sacrifices, undergo transformation. That's what the whole picture of the sacrificial system was about. That the animal would come in, would stand for human behavior, for a human being, and take upon sin. And then the animal, for example, in the burnt offering, would be transfigured into smoke and be totally burned up. And the smoke, God says, is pleasing, acceptable sacrifice to me. It's, he smells the smoke and is pleased by it. That image of God being pleased by the smell of the sacrifice sounds so you know, barbaric to us almost. Like, oh, how could we possibly have a religion that had sacrifice in it? Well, every outlook has sacrifice. Every outlook includes this. It's just that the Christian faith uses that aright. It was in an antecedent age where bloody sacrifices were an image of human beings that are made acceptable to God and transformed to be acceptable to God because of our sin. And ultimately that was consummated with Christ Himself. And as a result of the Christian faith, certainly as a result of the Christian faith in the West, Animal sacrifices have largely been done away with. I can't think of any religion in Western civilization that practices animal sacrifice. And that was a direct result of the gospel. Direct result of gospel transformation. Because the once for all sacrifice in Christ has come. But the picture of sacrifice is being transfigured to be acceptable to God. So Paul says, now you because you're connected to Christ, are that person. But still, he appeals to this idea of being transformed. Just like the animal would be burned up and transformed into a pleasing smell. Some scholars have argued that that pleasing aroma is actually a bridal image. I think Peter Lightheart argues that. That the image of the smell of the sacrifice is like when someone is getting married and they, they have become very perfumed and they, the waft of, of aroma comes out and they smell beautiful as well as look beautiful. That's the image of being transformed into a pleasing aroma. But notice, Paul even emphasizes it here in chapter 12, verse 2, that we're to be transformed. But how is it that we're transformed? What does it mean to be transformed? Obviously, the image of being burned up with fire is something that we don't literally do to ourselves obviously. But what does it mean for us to be transformed? Well, he says very practically and very directly, we're transformed by renewing our mind. We're transformed by changing the way we think. And indeed, changing the way you think does change you. Do you know that? Do you know that if you're an anxious person and you believe the promises of God, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And you believe that, it will change you from being an anxious person to being a person 
who has confidence. You know that by questioning yourself and having self-doubt and self-loathing and then realizing God has made you acceptable in Christ and you are a child of God. By going back to that and believing that instead of self-hatred, you will be changed. Your life can change by the way you think. Proverbs say, as a man thinketh, so is he. Paul says, be a living sacrifice and be transformed into the kind of person that God calls you to be by the change of your thought patterns. Now here's a very practical thing. I remember a few years ago when iPods became popular in the first wave of that, that one of the advertisements for Ligonier had an iPod on it and it had reform your playlist. You know, listen to these teachings by the Ligonier ministry. Well, indeed, reform your playlist. Change your mind by what you listen to. Now we have the luxury of listening to all kinds of things. But just a few moments, I find that I get into ruts of not listening to good things or just listening to talk radio or just listening to something that's music that I listen to over and over again. A simple action of preparing ahead of time what you're going to listen to for the week and getting the resources ready can help you transform the way you think. And how many of you have taken the time to do that lately, just to prepare so that you might hear and listen to something good or that you might take the time to read what you should be reading so that your mind is renewed? It's a garbage in, garbage out situation. And so Paul here says, transform your mind. And then you can see the rest of chapter 12 emphasizes quite specifically our relationship to the body. And so we have, if you look at our structure for the sermon today, inside the body, and then in chapter 13 it's outside the body. So inside the body, Paul explains how the body faces inward, how we are living sacrifices, being transformed by spiritual renewal. We're part of a body, a new humanity, And, of course, we see in chapter 12, verse 3, that the body member is not to think more highly of himself than he ought, so put down pride, transform the way you think of yourself. We're prone, of course, in the Reformed world to exalt certain gifts and be respecters of persons in the worst sense and to think much more highly of our kinds of Christians than others. And we tend to demean serving gifts. We tend to think lowly of churches that don't have higher theological ideas. But don't see that, look at people that are serving, that are out there going to be helping with the cleanup after this hurricane. There are people that were going to be helping with the tornadoes in the south when they happened a few months ago. These, these people are serving. We shouldn't demean serving gifts. And I think one of our applications, broadly speaking, to the Reformed Church is we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We tend to judge people based on theological concepts, and that's certainly something we should refrain from. The body example refutes this. Which part of the body would you like to be chopped off? You know, you certainly wouldn't want any part of your own body to be chopped off, and that's the very metaphor that Paul appeals to. Jesus said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And in history, grace eroded and subverted 
the natural ties so that the West was one for Christendom through service, through helping people in desperate times, through helping people with, in plagues, in natural disasters. We may have that very opportunity in our midst in these coming days to look for an opportunity for service. And that's the direction that Romans 12 goes toward to say as we are looking inside the body, we should rejoice with those who rejoice, Weep with those who weep. Bear one another's burdens. Look for opportunities to serve, to do practical service. That's how you live out being a living sacrifice. Look for those opportunities to serve. And have you done so? Even simple things like taking meals to one another, being sensitive to one another where, where we are, listening, to others, being sensitive to find out what are the real needs going on, being there to encourage. Do you know how much just a simple word of encouragement can change a person's outlook? When maybe you're down and you don't feel good and maybe some difficult things are happening in your life and someone just takes the opportunity to be sensitive to you to say, hey, how's it going? You know, I really appreciate this that you've done or this about you. You know how much that can shape the way you feel? And do you take those opportunities to do that? That's the application of being inside the body to indeed seek that. And now in chapter 13, secondly, we have outside the body. Now, if we are like this inside, within the church, within the people of God, then how do we interface with the rest of the world? Now, I would first of all note that Paul addresses the topic. I mean, that's worthy of note in and of itself. The, the church doesn't exist in isolation from the outside world. That's the first thing to note. And actually, just noting that steers us away from certain courses. There have been, through history and various times, different understandings of the Christian faith which have caused men to think, well, the way we really ought to do it is to set up a commune. If we really want to do it well, we need to get in isolation from the other rest of society. You know, we need to set up our own place where we have the authority, where we're not subject to anyone else's authority and power. In fact, let's go down to Virginia and buy some land and do it. That's happened. That's happened in our time. And there have been various groups, say Anabaptist groups certainly in the 1500s started to do this, to try to separate themselves from civil society to see themselves as really not part of that same community, but to have a separation between the church and society. And I would just notice that Paul in Romans 13 addresses the topic in such a way as to presume that the church will always be interfacing with the rest of society. So we tend to go, well, you know, the world is so bad. And again, depending on what background you came from, the idea of world, the world interfacing with the world is, is a huge challenge, a huge problem. But the Bible presumes that we're always going to be in the midst of society and we're always going to be wrestling with the interface of believers to the rest of the world. Do you see that in Romans 13? So what does he say? Well, he gives quite an interesting 
explanation of this. And it goes rather, I would say, it goes rather deeply because he's saying, let every person be subject to the powers. Now, he doesn't, I don't think, mean by that the power is simply a Caesar, the power is simply a governor, the power is simply some civil magistrate. I think he's saying there are powers and authorities in the world that are spiritual. That is, there are angelic forces or authorities and power structures set up in the world behind the scenes, and then there are rulers that are the face of those power structures. We might think of it like this. The presidency of the United States is a power. It's an exousia. That office is a power. There may very well be spiritual forces behind that office warring to and fro. I think that's what Paul is getting at here in Romans 13. He's not simply saying that a person is subject to an individual that's in office. He's saying there's something even behind that individual in office. And we can see some discussion to that effect also in passages like Ephesians um, chapter 1. And uh, also we see some reference to it even in the Old Testament in Daniel. Nevertheless, as it turns out, he says, for us not to resist this, this authority that's been set up, And then he goes on to speak of the rulers that um, basically carry the sword uh, of the state. And so I think that uh, in in our understanding of this, we have to remember the church has a certain kind of government. We talk about the government of Christ being Christ being the head and the church being set up with officers and to be related to one another in different congregations. That's why we have a presbyterial form of government. But the state has the sword, the sword of of execution, the sword of civil uh, punishment. And so I think Paul, in, uh, in referencing this, you can imagine Paul thinking as a Roman citizen, he would know the history of Israel relating to pagan society. Paul, being a Roman citizen, already understood that there was an interface between God's people, Israel, and between the state. And remember back in Israelite history, remember Joseph in Egypt, and Daniel in Babylon, and Nehemiah in Persia, who submitted themselves to pagan rulers under God and served their world emperor by being faithful to God. And God has used those people throughout history. So, again, this speaks to the idea of let's avoid, let's get out of any relationship to uh, even pagan society. Not at all. We see wonderful examples of this. Paul is able to say submit to these authorities with a straight face, even though he's living at a time and speaking this at a time when the Caesar is Nero himself. Nero sort of went crazy and began to kill Christians at the end of his reign. It's very likely, too, that he's saying this in, uh, in the context of Jews coming back into the city of Rome. Back in about 52 A.D., Claudius, the emperor at that time, sent all the Jews out of the city because they were riotous, they were seditious. And it could have been over the 
tumultuous times of people claiming to be a Christ or people claiming to, to be Messiah or it could have been the interface of the church with, um, with Jews that were denying that Jesus was the Christ. The details of that are not known. It's mentioned in Acts, I believe in Acts 18. It's also mentioned in one of the um, annals of, I believe, Tacitus where uh, they're sent away. But then when, ne- when Nero comes to power, he sends the Jews back or permits them back into the city. And so you have an influx of Jews in a context where there may have been uh, more of a Gentile church. And so I think this is one of the reasons that Paul spends so much time talking about Jews and Gentiles and the promises of God in Romans. But he's saying in no uncertain terms to believers in terms of Romans 13, listen, Christians be good citizens. Christians be in submission to these civil magistrates. Be in submission insofar as it is right. And the civil magistrate has a role with the Lord. Thus, Christians should be better citizens than most pagans. And in fact, the early apologists arguing for the truth of Christianity could appeal, like Justin Martyr could appeal to, look at our people. Look at how good they are. Look at how model they are in their citizens. The only thing they won't do is worship false gods. They won't worship the emperor. They won't worship false gods. But beyond that, they're model citizens. Now, Christians have not always been able to make that apologetical appeal, have they? In our day, that may or may not be a very winsome appeal, but he could at that time. The powers then exercise the, the machete, as it were, the sword to punish evildoers. And we could note here that Paul's under, understanding of what the role of civil government in bearing the sword is not to rehabilitate them, but rather to simply provide punishment. And maybe that would be a lesson for us today. So Christians, therefore, are not to be troublemakers nor seek revolution to bring about change, which is exactly, of course, why the Jews were banished from Rome, um, as we see under Claudius. Now, Romans 13 doesn't say all that we would like for it to say about the relationship of the church and society. It doesn't give us a systematic theology of of civil government at all. It does not contemplate righteous and necessary occasions for civil disobedience, such as the case in Daniel 3.12 where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being told to worship the statue of, of Nebuchadnezzar and they will not do it. It only shows, you know, one, as it were, kind of gesture that we have as a body toward civil society. We are to be in subjection to them. There, of course, are exceptions, and desperate times call for desperate self-sacrificial measures. We read of that in Esther, for example. Romans 13, I don't think, can be used properly to prop up Nazism or Stalinism or some kind of totalitarianism. We can do our duties by rendering what is due and what is due. Well, tax is due. So that really undoes, I think, tax evasion or tax protesting. Tax is due. Paul recognizes that. Jesus recognized that. I have visited one of my friends who was a tax protester in jail. was thrown in jail. And refusing to get a lawyer, 
because then he would be buying into the system. They put him in jail awaiting a sanity hearing. I went to visit him at that point, and uh, after some time had elapsed, he finally got an attorney, and we got him out, and then had to work out a payment plan to deal with tax evasion. So I would say that's just not wise. You, you can make lots of arguments about what's wrong with the our taxation system in, in America. There's a lot of problems with it. Um, you know, it's hard to understand how rational people came up with it. But nevertheless, the principle of being paying taxes is plain. And we shouldn't be dishonest about that. You know, there are temptations to do that. You buy something, you go pay tax on it, you can tell them a different number. And I remember I sold a car a few years ago and the guy was saying, can we just say for the for the you know, state taxes, can we just say it was less than this? And I said, you know, this is what I sold it for. I'm not going to, you know, hold your hand here, but I'm not going to participate in that. And I don't think that's some bold, righteous action. It's just, look, you know, that's not worth it. It's not worth it to me to, to do that. Try to be an honest citizen. And, you know, when regulations come and we look at all of the regulatory agencies and such, there's a lot of idiocy in our country on those matters. But I think we should, following the advice here, simply try to be good citizens. Try to do things in an above-board way. That's a, that's a lesson to us. Try to do things in an above-board way. And then you have no fear, no concern. You know what? That leads me to say, how about driving? How about the speed limit? Doesn't this imply and I'm saying this obviously as someone who's many times driven over the speed limit, obviously. And every, just about everybody has. But doesn't this imply that we should drive according to the speed limit? Think about that. Doesn't it imply that we would be better off, safer, etc., if we simply tried to obey even the moving traffic indications? Well, I'm not going to press that too far. Obviously, there are there's some flexibility in our system. But I think the overall idea is let's honor those who are in office, even if we disagree with them politically. Let's give custom or honor to whom it's due. And let's simply act out of love, even in that way. And at the end of this, he makes it very clear. We shouldn't be riotous in our life. And we should rather instead make no provision for the flesh, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So that as we, as a body, grow together in love for one another, in service for one another, then we can be respectable in society. And so, in, indeed, Christians should be better citizens than those who are not believers. We should have more honor. We should give more honor even to those we disagree with. Maybe that's when it's most necessary for us to show such honor. And I think that that leads us, and I've had different, believe me, I've not always felt this way. I've had different views about things like traffic laws and such. Um, I remember at a <laughs> recent Presbytery event we were talking about, what do you say when you get pulled over for a ticket? And so my friend that preached here some weeks ago, Tony Aguilar, said, I, I've learned, someone told me this, and I've learned to say when the policeman pulls up, say, 
Officer, thank you so much for stopping me. I was, whatever you were doing, I was going over the speed limit, and that's very dangerous. And he did that one time, and the policeman looked down at him and just said, okay, be careful. Don't do that again, and let him go. Whereas I have been stopped before, and one of my phrases was, and how fast were you going? That is, that would be a violation of Romans 13, which I'm uh, publicly, of course, confessing right now. Uh, that is, that doesn't actually work either. Um, not only is that a violation of giving honor to whom honor is due, even though he was speeding, according to anything that I could see, um, Certainly, it's not giving honor, but it's also not practically useful either. That doesn't work to get you out of a ticket. Um, so it's important for us to see that we have a responsibility not only to one another, not only to be the kind of people God calls us to be, individually being transformed and renewed, yes. Then our relationship to others, being a Christian, is not being on an island alone. It's not just your individual piety that's at stake. It's how you serve the body. But also, Romans 13, it's how we interface with society. And how are we going to interface with our society in order to show that we are people who have nothing to fear because we have Christ and because He's taking care of our needs? That's the kind of people that we should be. Living sacrifices that live out that sacrificial life even to a pagan or secular society. Let's pray and ask God to give us grace to do that. Father, we do thank you for the instruction of Romans 13. We pray that you would help us fulfill the law of love. That is, to act out of love and to remember that we are, by your providential care, by your providential hand, put under a hierarchy of authority even in our country. We thank you for the biblical and Christian roots in our nation and land, for the freedoms and liberties that we have. We pray that you would give those who lead us wisdom to avoid the erosion of those liberties. But we ask that you would make us to have a heart to obey all of your law, including those laws that come through being subject to our government. Help us do so in a way that honors and glorifies you and give courage to those who may indeed be called to civil disobedience in some areas or another in order to better reform the laws of our land. In the meantime, however, we ask for the grace to live in a way as becomes followers of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.